HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Heritage Foods USA, the nation's largest distributor of heritage breed pigs and turkeys. For more information, visit heritagefoodsusa.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. I'm Linda Palaccio, and you are listening to A Taste of the Past here on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Today, I am very pleased to have two special guests with me, um, Anya von Bremsen. Anya is, is a very well-published writer, food writer, and uh, journalist in, in general. Uh, she is a regular contributor for Travel and Leisure magazine, does a lot of travel and food writing, has published a couple of cookbooks, a Spanish, The Spanish Table and Please to Table. There's an Italian book there, too. Is there not? No? No, that's next to come. Book, book okay. Around the World. Around the World, right. But please, please to Table, the Russian dishes. That's, that is certainly uh, the tome that is one of my favorites um, because it really, it really gives a whole view of Russian cuisine. And... And she is the newly published author of Mastering the Art of Soviet Cooking. Now, this is not a cookbook. This is a memoir, an evocative memoir of, of food and life in growing up in Soviet Russia and then post-time uh, having emigrated to the United States. And as a special treat, we've got Anya's mother here with us, Larissa. Welcome, Larissa. Thank you. From whom Anya learned many dishes or has shared many dishes and uh, was an inspiration to her in writing food. Anya, I'm going to start with you. Thank you for being here. Thank you. And you said, you've often said, especially in this book, um, your memoir, Mastering the Art of Soviet Cooking, that you have somewhat been conflicted about becoming a food writer. What was the conflict in that for you? Well, uh, first of all, you know, I I come from a society where there was barely any food. Uh, so uh, I found I find this very ironic. You know, so, well, so a little background: you grew I'm, up. In I grew up in the Soviet Union in the late sixties and early seventies, before we immigrated in nineteen seventy four. Um, and you know, the subtitle of of the book is a memoir of food and longing, mm-hmm. and longing is the kind of the central concept. It's it's a the, it's a book about not having food, 
as much as it is about having it. It's about shortages and what food meant, you know, to me, my family, and you know, the entire Soviet, the entire Soviet nations, as a nation, as they used to say. Um, so it's it's very much uh, about you know, scarcity. Right, and this this idea of longing, food, and longing. And I love you quote in one of the articles that you wrote about the book. You quoted Herb Cain and the the wonderful journalist, and he said, "Nostalgia is memory without the pain." Does this sort of describe a little bit about what you've been going through and with some of the dishes that you you and your mother have been trying to recreate? Well, actually, it's quite it's quite the opposite. I, I quote uh, I quote Herb Cain in an article that I just did for Travel Niger about the current wave of nostalgia for the Soviet Union uh-huh. in Russia right now, where, you know, they suddenly think, oh, it was such a cool time and we were all better people. And they completely airbrush all the historical trauma, you know, the millions of people uh, that were killed by the regime, you know, the whole kind of dictatorial aspect. Um, the, 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 the the term I use for in, in this book a lot is... Poisoned Madeleine. I love that. Yeah, that so you take the that you give, yes. idea of this idealized childhood, you know, triggered by you know a certain food, and I say, well, you know, our our pasts were ideologized instead of idealized, and a lot of the food brings back you know very difficult memories for you. Yes, you know, so memories f- of the shortages, memories of you know longing, not having. Uh, memories of you know food you know gone bad you know it's 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 this whole kind of rich brew a rich layering of you know very conflicting feelings uh, and you know f- conflicting feelings that we, we felt for the state like my mom for instance she's very anti-Soviet and right. we fled that state and uh, and that's so how do you love foods. Uh, foods uh, from a terrible state. That's right. I mean, that's, that's just. Do you think that, by state. and large, a lot of these people where this there is this this rush to bring back everything with the CCCP, the the you know the the Soviet symbols and and all these old dishes, are they younger generations that don't remember this? Well, yeah. There's a whole uh, there's a whole post-Soviet generation. Uh, you know, you hear it a lot. Even the, the kids, they say, "Oh, Granny, Granny, tell me about what was life in you know what was life like in the USSR." USSR has kind of is being you know really mythologized, glamorized, all, you know, totally glamorized. You know because uh, it sells well. It's it's a brand. You know, it's it's become a brand. Mm-hmm. You know that the politicians use it. Uh, you know to kind of signify you know power, stability. We were once a great empire. Um, you know, companies use it who produce various items. You know, it's it's a political and commercial brand. All right. Well, Larissa, you were uh, always kind of a uh, well, a dissident, um, refusenik, I guess. We were you? I don't. But you, so you were always anti-establishment. Um, what? How did you grow up? What were you cooking? Uh, yeah, but I didn't become right away when I was born because I was born really very patriotic family and they loved everything and I mentally loved everything myself but uh, emotionally since very early childhood I remember this uh, feeling of uh, uh, that life was miserable that it was lack of something important and since I started reading very very early in my life I just found in the book something which I never even heard in real life, we never saw. So uh, when, uh, after Stalin's death, exactly, I was uh, 19 or 18, so then I opened my eyes 
oh, my eyes were opened, and I realized that everything went wrong from the very, very beginning. It was a tragedy, and it was everywhere. And especially remembering all this starvation and uh, uh, really lack of food and limited supply and uh, nothing to uh, we wanted to, uh, and we couldn't get it. So everything uh, just uh, made me, uh, what you say, dissident. We were not refusing, we were lucky because we were allowed to uh, leave Russia right. exactly uh, very soon after we applied. So it was a very good thing. That's good. Uh, but, uh, well, being raised of the Jewish, um, in a Jewish family too, that brought extra problems, I would imagine, in terms of how you were treated, what you were able to, to have access to. Yeah, that's right. Uh, I would say that family wasn't really Jewish family, not observers. Mm -hmm. But uh, at the same time, our name, it's Frumkin, and uh, we had this uh, number five issue in our passport, which was Jewish. And that was, uh, uh, of course, uh, very... Mm, uh, lots of obstacles brings uh, uh, brings to our right. existence. Right. Number uh, five, uh, just to clarify, number five was you know the graph in your passport that stated your nationality, and Jewishness was defined in ethno-national terms, not as a religious identity. So you could be a Russian, uh, a Kazakh, an Uzbek, or a Jew. And in the 1970s, being a Jew was not a desirable. Category right. and you know, in, in terms of foods, you know, for instance, we grew up completely secularized because you know Jewish religion was you know banned or semi banned. So you know, in the book, I write about my first encounter with gefilte fish mm. in Odessa. Not you know, we lived in Moscow, and it shocked me because I didn't know that Jewish food even existed. I remember like when I saw matzah, you know, hidden away by some old Jewish lady, you know, for Passover. I was also shocked. I was like, what is this, you know? Because eating something was an expression, if, if it was an expression of an undesirable identity, it could really land you in trouble. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, you started, so um, when you were young even, and times were tough, there was no money, there was no food, even if you had, well, if you had money, but you weren't um, part of the elite, the, the government elite, so things weren't available to the common person. Um but your mother always made it special for you. And, you know, it's interesting. I, I started out talking about comfort food, foods we long for from our youth and, and our childhood. And you talked about a dish in particular, and I'm going to ask Larissa about it first, and then I'm going to take have ask your take on it. And, Larissa, it was um, – you didn't have a whole lot in the pantry, but you managed to make some fried eggs – and brown bread. Can you tell me about that? <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Yes, sometimes we really uh, didn't have any money for uh, any special food, and but had eggs and uh, brown bread, which was always available, not very expensive. And so it was... Uh, now it is remembered like a delicious things. I just, in the butter, I fried uh, uh, pieces of uh, bread, and then added uh, scrambled eggs, and it became something very, very desirable <laughs> and even uh, like holiday food. Right. Well, necessity is the mother of invention, they say. And for you, Anya, this dish evokes memories of your childhood, obviously. And well, it was an interesting time for me and my mom because I grew up in a communal apartment. 
you know, where 18 families share the kitchen. Quite a wonderful description in the book. I it's hilarious. <laughs> it was just something, you know, out of a dark comedy. You could make a movie about that. And my father abandoned us uh, when I, after I was born, but we continued to live with him and, and his mother in one room because of the housing shortage. And then finally, my mom and I got our own apartment, private apartment in the outskirts of Moscow. And, you know, we were extremely happy together. We were like this little newlyweds, you know, finally we had <laughs> privacy and my mom loved me and I loved her. Um, you know, but we lived on my father's alimony, which was, you know, below poverty. Um, so my mom, yeah, my mom would, you know, I remember, you know, the smell, it was like dark Russian sourdough bread, mm -hmm. you know, very dense, you know, and she fried it into cubes. Uh, and you know this delicious, this delicious little toast, toasty kind of things, and then and then you know the eggs would run all over it. But you know bread was something that was almost always available because the government remembered the trauma of the World War II, you know, well, with the, the with, with, the, with yeah. the bread rationing, and bread was something sac sacred. Uh, and also the year I was born, there was a grain failure in 1963. Um, and Khrushchev, you know, tried to raise food prices, and his agricultural policies were a total fiasco. You know, he was completely uh, obsessed with corn, you know, mm -hmm. at the expense of grain. And you know, the grain crisis and the and the, and the bread shortages that arose from that cost him his uh, his leadership. He was, you know, pushed out of office. And after that, you know, the Brezhnev leadership that lasted for eighteen years, essentially, you know, uh, never changed the bread prices and made sure that bread was always available because there were, you know, really hard political lessons uh, that even in a totalitarian country, you know, bread riots are not, are not a good thing. Uh, so bread was always cheap, always available. It's something you could always count on, and it was delicious. Well, and on also um, something that is, you know, in every culture, there is that, you know, the, the tears fall into certain foods that are prepared when you know during times of sadness love flows into certain foods and it makes the cake rise or whatever so obviously there was love flowing into this dish that your mother made because she had nothing and she was making something special to feed you that has to that has to play in big in our in the memories i mean it you know that in yes and my mother also because because you know to make our life uh you know she, she's a dreamer she still is uh, and, you know, despite all the shortages, despite the grayness, you know, of our life, she always fantasized about food, you know, ever since she herself started cooking. <clears throat> so she would make all this, you know, very frugal dishes, like the omelet or, you know, some cabbage soup. And she would call them exotic names like potafa or, you know, she would make a Russian pie and call it pizza. Uh, and you know, she read, you know, like crazy. She read Proust. She read Hemingway. She read all these novels. And she would take the names of the dishes. She had no idea what they actually tasted like. Uh, but she would, you know, I remember she, she read to me the passage about the Madeleine from Proust. And we were like, what is this Madeleine? What is it? What can it taste like? We had absolutely no clue. But it felt us, it filled us with longing just to imagine that we were, you know, so she would serve me some, you know, black bread toast and saying, oh, this is a Madeleine. <laughs> well, it's interesting. Larissa, you had said before the show that you've always been interested in food history. Yeah, that's right. And uh, for me, food history started with Russian literature because they 
are so vividly and so colorful they uh, just described I mean great Russian writers Tolstoy, Gogol uh, and uh, Goncharov and Chekhov of course and uh, so all those dishes were just uh, many of them were available because we could bake something we could uh, make something and ingredients sometimes were very simple like if you making borscht or she or uh, whatever, mm-hmm. but uh, she's a cabbage soup. <laughs> cabbage soup, yeah. And uh, so uh, I always try to make that. But especially interesting was what uh, they ate in Zagranitsa abroad. I mean, abroad. I, was, I was going to bring that up. Yeah. Your fascination with uh-huh. Zagranitsa. Yeah, and uh, so, but there there was one food for the poorest. Uh, People, which we never mentioned before, but I remember it. It was a uh, raw onion cut into pieces, and uh, uh, it was uh, some vinegar and uh, a, a brown bread. And the most important ingredient: this is uh, 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 sunflower oil. And all together with this uh, brown bread. It was so delicious. I just recently uh, made my salad, and I ate it uh, kind of this. And it was so great. And uh, <laughs> I, I mean, it does sound... And pickled onion. Pickled onions, it sounds like the onions yeah, are pickled yeah, yeah, in the yeah. vinegar. But pickled onions in a, or, a, or uh-huh. a panzanella, or, you know, yeah. add a few tomatoes, and there you have another yeah. dish. It is a, it's a very... I mean, it is, sounds like a delicious dish. Yeah. Uh, you... Tell me, you made a lot of these dishes from your imagination, from memory, for, uh, from, not from, but from reading the books. So you got a lot of your ideas from literature, correct? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's right. But the book that was the book, the tome of, of the cookbook, was The Book of Tasty and Healthy Food. Anya, can you describe this from what you remember from your mother? Do you, were you, did you have this book in the home? Well, the book of uh, Tasty and Healthy Food was like the sort of totalitarian kitchen Bible. Uh, was that 1939? It was, it was brought I think out first. by the Soviet Food Commissariat in 1939. That was the first edition. And um, it really tried to create uh, a fantasy of abundance and joy in a country, you know, that just went on, you know, through un- unbelievable historic upheavals. You know, the first five-year plan um, you know, the collectivization, the enforced kind of industrialization, you know, millions of people dead from, from the famines. Um, but Stalin decided, you know, that finally it was time to kind of push this ideal that they've, you know, socialists has achieved so much. And the cookbook is this incredible kind of piece of fantasy with, you know, lavish photos of, you know, non-existent products. Um, Unattainable, a, a, a book of a fiction. But book, at, right? at the same, at the same time, there were a lot of simple recipes that could be made, you know. And it went through fourteen different editions. Uh, it survived, you know, until the end of the Soviet Union, until nineteen ninety one, and is still very popular today. And each new edition sort of reflected the shift in the regime. Uh-huh. Uh, for instance, you know, in the late nineteen thirties, were quite internationalist. You know, the Soviet Union believed in the internationalist idea. So you know, there. There's ketchup, there's cornflakes, there's Jewish dish, there's a dish from ethnic minor- certain ethnic minorities. A lot of quotes from Stalin. Yes, <laughs> that, but the ethnic minorities were later deported by Stalin. For instance, like the Kalmyks, uh, there was this anti- anti-Jewish hysteria after the World War II. So, for instance, the iconic 1952 edition 
is really xenophobic. It purges all this kind of, you know, <laughs> foreign elements from the book. Then, you know, after Stalin dies, all the quotations from Stalin are deleted. Uh, then with Khrushchev, you know, who kind of preached, you know, streamlined, functional approach to design, the cover becomes, you know, streamlined and functional. So it, it was a very, it's, it's very interesting as a political document as well as a cookbook. All right. Well, um, Larissa, you brought up the term Zagranitsa. Uh, Zagranitsa, um, describe what that term actually means. You, you said something about it, Anya, but We'll yeah, of course, we lived in the uh, Iron Curtain time, and so the granitsa, so uh, uh, foreign countries, it was something desirable. Uh, it was something we imagined very well through uh, literature, through uh, paintings, especially impressionists, and uh, it was something we felt we knew, but it was not available for us to be there and to taste it. Mm -hmm. And so uh, for me, it was, I had dreams, uh, uh, repeated dreams, how I turned into a little bird or a little insect like a fly, and I am in Paris, and I am at the door of the cafe, and I smell it, and now I think I will find out what it is. But all the but time the word, I woke the up. The word itself, Zagranitsa, Granitsa is border. Zagranitsa means beyond, beyond the border. So it's a very loaded, you know, it's a very loaded word. It's a border that was close to us and we could never yeah. cross. Yeah. So you, the two of you took to creating or recreating, well, creating, because not recreating, because you didn't make them at the time, but dishes that, as you say, were sort of bittersweet, um, dishes that pretty much were symbols of the uh, the, the regime, the, the elitist, um, but you had, you longed for them in a way. What, in, what were some of these dishes in particular? Well, the book is organized into decades of the Soviet century. You know, the chapters are, you know, 1910, 1920, 1930, and, you know, it's, it's, it's a mix of uh, family history, of a family memoir, and uh, social history, and as well as this cooking chronicle of me and my mom cooking our way through the te- 10 decades of the Soviet experience. And for each of the decades, we picked you know, a dish that was emblematic, both politically and for us personally. Uh, so the 1910, uh, the 19-teens, we start with kulebiaka, mm-hmm. which, with this lavish, elaborate, layered Russian fish pie that was very tall, you know, went up, 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 and it's layered with blini. So you kind of have dough upon dough, you know, rice, mushrooms. And it's something that was being lavishly described in Gogol, Nikolai Gogol, and Chekhov, you know, it's this literary dish that was famous in turn of the century in Moscow. Uh, so with that dish, we say goodbye to Tsarist cuisine, to the, you know, the golden age of, of, of Russian food. And then in 1917 comes, the revolution happens, there's no more food, you know, everything everything just kind of collapses, uh, and Russian cuisine, you know, is essentially, you know, declared, you know, unpa- you know uh, bourgeois, and, you know, the Bolsheviks want to change everything. In the 1920s chapter, it's interesting, um, I talk about the Jewish identity, and, uh, you know, my, my, my parents who met in Odessa, which was a very Jewish city, where my mother's uh, grandmother ran um, a sort of a semi-underground uh, um, cant- you know, canteen mm-hmm. out of her house. And um, 
you know, so it talks about Jewishness, and, and so the dishes gefilte fish, that gefilte fish that I encountered in Odessa when I was about nine years old and it kind of shocked me with the meaning of the Soviet Jewish, Jewishness. And in 30s talks about katlete, uh, the meat patties, that became at that time kind of the all-Soviet industrialized, uh, you know, manufactured, mass-manufactured product. So meat patties, which we would almost, you know, translate as a cutlet, but it wasn't really even a cutlet. It was, it was a meat kind patty. of more like but a it sounds like, but it sounds like a. It cutlet. was more like a hamburger, you know, like a, like like a meat cake. Uh, and then for 1940s, for instance, we were wondering which dish to prepare because that chapter is very harrowing. It's about World War Two, mm-hmm. and you know the terrible starvation, and it's about my grandmother, grandfather, my my father's father, uh, who was a top intelligence officer, who was a spy, and it's about my mother losing her rationing card. Uh, when she was seven years old. So it was a very, you know, very tragic, you know, chapter. So finally I decided, no, instead of a recipe, we're going to have an image of a ration card from the siege of Leningrad, 1941. In the siege, you know, a million people died from starvation. Uh, and one ration of bread, you know, 128 grams, you know, less than four ounces, could actually spell the difference between survival and death. Absolutely. Um, so it goes on and on. There are, ten, there are nine, nine recipes at the end of the book. And, of course, we, we would be remiss not to mention the Salat Olivier. The Salat Olivier, if you ask what, is the most iconic, emblematic uh, Soviet dish. You know, it would have to be Salat Olivier. And it's, it's a potato salad with pickles, um, drenched in mayonnaise. Sometimes you add chicken to it, sometimes crab, sometimes nothing. And, but it has a very fancy bourgeois past because it was a hit in 1860s at a French restaurant in Moscow called L'Hermitage, mm-hmm. where it was prepared by Chef Lucien Olivier. Of course, the original dish featured grouse, crayfish, mm-hmm. uh, cornichons, you know, a special Provencal sauce. Uh, and then grouse, you know, the poet of the revolution, uh, Vladimir Mayakovsky, wrote a jingle uh, eat, gobble your pineapple, uh, chomp on your grouse. Your last day of is coming. Your bourgeois louse. <laughs> so actually, grouse, pineapple, all this kind of tsarist de- delicacy become you know become like public enemies number one. Um, and then the dish was kind of reinvented in the 1930s by a chef you know who supposedly worked at Lemitage, but it was Sovietized. So instead of crayfish. Uh, for the pink color, they put just boiled carrots. <laughs> instead of uh, instead of grouse, they put you know some chicken meat or kielbasa. Uh, so you know it becomes this kind of all Soviet. It is really delicious and all smothered you know in the newly produced ma- in newly mass produced industrial mayonnaise. Uh, and it's just like the best potato salad. The pickles you know give it that tang. And everyone has their own recipe. My mom makes hers with fresh cucumber in addition to the pickle and a little bit of apple, which gives it kind of this lovely crunch. So you all, everyone has their own memory of, of their own version of, of salad. But that's Olivier. definitely, you know, not just comfort food, but it's also festive because mm-hmm. mayonnaise was a little hard to get. So, you know, you had to line up for it. So it's something that was eaten for New Year's. And then New Year's, uh, in Russia, New Year replaced Christmas because Christmas was a religious holiday and was banned. So New Year was when all the families got together around a festive table waiting for the Kremlin clock to strike 12 and for Leonid Brezhnev to come on, you know, with his, you know, festive speech. And he was just this kind of decrepit idiot. <laughs> and there you have this festive ball of Salat Olivier. It's a very cherished fun. memory. Yeah, fun, indeed. Larissa, a memory that, that maybe isn't quite as pleasant. Tell me about Vobla. 
a Pobla, that's a very pleasant memory because okay. it was something because we did, it was lack of uh, many things. So we love First, what Pobla is? Yeah, what what? Pobla uh, is a Caspian uh, fish. Uh, I think it's called in English. It's called roach fish. Uh, and it's dried in salt, you know, to this kind of completely petrified state. And this is, you know, this is something you ate with beer. Uh-huh. And you broke your teeth. And kind of like you, a, you a, fish, a new meaning to fish chip. <laughs> Not yeah, fish and chips, but fish and chips. It was chip. really hard. You had to <laughs> whack it against the table. You, you know, there was a whole ritual. You kind of spread the newspaper on the table and you whacked the fish against the table to loosen the skin. And you kind of pulled off the skin. Then you know you kind of broke you know broke your gum you know broke, broke your teeth you know trying to eat it, but it was you know every every strip of the skin. Yeah. But Lucy, you say it, but you say it was a pleasant memory no, no, because we loved it and uh, we stayed in line for many hours to get wobbler and uh, this fish and we got uh, sacks of it big 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 bag because uh, it's very light. And so the, I remember that uh, summertime uh, in uh, the dacha was nothing to eat at all. And this wobla and uh, brown bread, it was our uh, most important food. So it was enough to sustain you during, yeah. Yeah, during and, it, and actually it's very good with beer. Uh-huh. It's a great beer, zakuska. Now it's really popular. You know, they have, you know, the Soviet-style beer halls. You know, the, the fanciest restaurateur in Moscow, Arkady Novikov, uh, he has a place which is like the Soviet-style beer hall with, you know, Soviet-style beer, with a wobbler fish. You know, everyone cries. Everyone loves it. Just <laughs> Drink a lot of beers and eat yeah. the fish and cry, right? Yeah. Well, there are so many wonderful memories um, and some painful memories, of course. It's nostalgia. It's a memoir. But it is a beautiful book, and it really is it because you take uh, food through the decades that you recreate. It really is a history of of what was going on at the time, and uh, I think anyone who was you know hoping to get recipes from that, they will not be disappointed because even though there are not recipes per se, the 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 descriptions of the dishes, the descriptions of your travels. Um, and life at the time. Actually, there are recipes. Well, yes, there are. At the end, right. I'm sorry. It's not a cookbook. Right, but not a cookbook. There there are recipes. Per se, yeah. And I I just, I thank you for writing it because it it was an eye-opener for for me. And it was a wonderful book. And Larissa, I'm so glad that you were here to share your thoughts as well. Thank you. Obviously, a wonderful influence on your daughter. And thank you so much. And thank you for listening. This has been A Taste of the Past, and I'm your host, Linda Palaccio. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.